This episode is brought to you in part by B&H Publishing Group. Sam Alberry's new kids' book, God's Go-Togethers, provides a helpful foundation for explaining why God made men and women as a special pair to complement each other in marriage and beyond. Learn more at godsgotogethers.com. Your eyes on the times, you walk ready to speak up. But with so many problems, you're exhausted trying to keep up. This is the Church Politics Podcast, where you can get political commentary from a biblical worldview. We're not trying to be conservative or progressive. We're trying to be Christian in the public square. And I'm black as heaven. I'm made in God's image. Nobody can change my settings. Hey man, cut off my knees and put an end to my search. It's easy to sell your soul when you don't know what it's worth. Which is no good, Ann Camp. You're listening to the Ann Campaign's Church Politics Podcast with Justin Gibney, a.k.a. Bishop Cooper's grandson, in the Windy City representer, the baddest brother above the Mason-Dixon line, my play cousin, the right reverend, Christopher Butler. Chris, first question I got to ask you is, how you like my new mic, man? I don't know if you, I don't know if you, you noticed it or not, man. How, how you like my oh, new yes. mic? Oh it's very nice. I was, I was dealing with yeah. covetousness when I was down in Atlanta. <laughs> yeah, man, I, I like my new mic. I appreciate our, our people for putting it together, and so hopefully you can hear me a little bit better, especially on YouTube. All right, because we were having some audio problems with YouTube, and I thought it might have been my mic, and we had some people help us out with that. And I, I'm, I'm going to apologize to our YouTubers, Justin, because yeah. I am. Uh, podcasting from my dungeon uh, this morning. Yeah. So if you can't see me, it's because I'm in the lane. It actually looks kind of cool, though. It, 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 it's, <laughs> it's a little vibe to it, bro. It's actually kind of cool. But let me say this, man, because there's something else I got to address. It's come to my attention that a friend of the podcast, someone who used to be a co-host on the podcast, visited the Church Politics podcast while I was gone last week. And this person had some choice words for my previous stance against the bills and basically suggested that I I didn't come to the podcast that day. I was out of town. I was at Virginia Union University, but suggested that I didn't come to the podcast because the bills were still in the playoffs. Now, I want to point out that after making those comments, his team was struck down. His team was made a footstool his team was eliminated from the NFL playoffs. And you guys all know who this is. This is our, our friend, Michael Ware, and we, we like to go back and forth on that. But I had to point out that they were struck down. I mean, you know, I don't know if it had anything to do with those comments and, and how he came at me, but hey, they were, they were struck down and they're no longer in it. But if I'm going to be honest, Chris, I actually wanted the Bills to win. I, I actually got a chance to meet their quarterback at an event that I spoke at. Really, really cool Christian brother. Uh, Josh Allen, really great quarterback, too. Josh Allen's a great quarterback. So I actually wanted them to beat KC. I'm from Denver, number one, but I'm KC got a lot of other stuff going on right now. I'm just not feeling that team right now. Like, they've become really pop and are becoming to be a very corny team that I think a lot of people may end up disliking them if they continue on this route. You were all part of this, Chris, so, so go ahead, man. Hey, I just want to say our hearts go out to Michael and to all of the Buffalo Bills fans. I'm a, a hardcore Bears fan, so I know what it is like to have your, your playoff and Super Bowl uh, aspirations taken away on a missed field goal. So our hearts go out to you. That was heart-wrenching. 
That was heart-wrenching. But, but we do want to yeah, shout out is. our boy, Michael Weir, because one of the things that Michael has done recently is he came out with, with a new book, The Spirit of Our Politics. If you listened last week, you got to hear an interview where he talked about that book. Great book. You got to go get it. Perfect timing for this election season. All right. Absolutely. So make sure you check out our brother, Michael Ware. And, and, and keep him in your prayers, man. I, I'm no, I know he's had a, a rough week this week. Well, probably a bittersweet week. He got a book coming out, but his, also, his team also, as I said, got struck now. So something to keep in mind. Now, Chris, I don't know if you follow how much you follow social media, hopefully not too much. But when I am on social media, I have found that these nostalgic memes and these nostalgic videos, there's even pages that are just for like 90s and 80s babies that bring back old stuff that you had not seen in forever. And so I, I, I enjoy that nostalgic feeling of seeing some of these memes and some of these videos. And speaking of that, a, a dear friend of mine, a, a brother named Nub, who I appreciate, actually sent me a reel showing what I believe to be the most classic commercial in the history of commercials. I have not stopped thinking about this, this reel since he sent it to me. And I want to go and and some of you may be familiar with. It. I hope you're familiar with it. But I have go. I'm gonna have to go ahead and let our producer, uh, Slewfoot Sammy, go ahead, Slew, and put that clip. Run that clip for me, and we're gonna see if people are familiar with this this commercial. Go ahead. Now you can own one of the greatest gospel albums ever on with only giant hits and legendary stars like Aretha Franklin. Jesus. They're all here in a special TV collection called Rough Side of the Mountain. Watch carefully. I know that everything is gonna be alright. You get Al Green's most exciting gospel hit. Like he said he would. Shirley Caesar's Hold My Mule, her story song of thanks and praise. The Winans. The Clark Sisters, you brought the sunshine. Now, Chris, I want to say this. I've probably seen that commercial 10,000 times in my life. And like I said, again, it's I believe it's the greatest commercial. If you are 35. And you have never seen that commercial. As Joe Biden once said, you ain't black. <laughs> okay, I'm kidding. You, you still can be black, but I, I, I just want to say I, it was interesting how you added the the poor grammar, the poor language, right? right. The broken English to, 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 kind of make, to, to make it seem authentic. Anyway, we've talked about that stupid comment before. Anyway, Chris, ha- have you seen that commercial before? I have seen the commercial. I have owned the CD. This is some of the greatest gospel music in the history of music and gospel, man. So I love gospel music. So I love watching that commercial. Likewise. I, I love listening to that to that music. I think the whole world would be a better place. You know, the federal government just invested in sending that CD to every American, tell them to give it a listen. I agree with you, but I also come with a proposal. Okay. One of my favorite, I love almost all those songs, right? And I got to get a hold of that. I'm, I'm going to put a, t- a playlist together with all those songs on it because I got I to yeah. listen to that again. But I have a proposal for you. You know that with Civic Revival, we are going on a tour and all that stuff. I want to propose that one of my favorite songs off of that album, which is Al Green's Everything's Gonna Be All Right, 
I propose that that be our civic revival theme song for 2024 and that everywhere we go on the tour, we start by playing that song. What do you think about that, Chris? I'm so for that. It is uh, it's, it's a very appropriate song. I'm for it. Y'all just got to hope that I don't break out and singing at any of the tour stops. Hey, go for it. So so listen to this, folks. If you really ride with the and campaign, if you're really part of the and camp, number one, make sure you go listen to Al Green's Everything's Gonna Be All Right. And your theme song for 2024 is Al Green's Everything's Gonna Be All Right. There's a message in there. There's a message in there for you. That's going to be our theme song. If you ride with us, listen to that today and then make that your theme song. Because if you listen to that, man, nobody can really steal your joy. If you listen to Al Green, everything's going to be all right. Yeah. So so when people coming at me, like any, any of y'all who like to come at me on social media, just know when I see that, I'm just going to turn on that Al Green. I'm going to be I'm going to be cool. You know, I'm, I'm, not, I'm not tripping on none of y'all got to say after I play that. All right. So y'all heard it first here. That's going to be our theme song. We are going to request that before we start any presentation during this period that they're going to play that Al Green. All right. Now, as always, I want to give a shout out to our patrons and our supporters for supporting us in what we do and how we do it. And there's actually the first segments kind of about that in a way. Uh, If you're watching on YouTube, make sure that you like and subscribe. Okay. If you want to be a patron, you can go on patreon.com slash church politics and you can get our premium episode. So we have episodes and talk about certain things that we don't necessarily talk about right here. For instance, today uh, I'll be talking about why it's important to critique your party even during a consequential election cycle. All right. So if you want to hear what I got to say about that, you need to become a patron and support what we're trying to do. It's very important. But we got a lot to cover today. So I I can't. This was a longer introduction than we usually do, but I do want to get into it. So grab your Bible. Get your mind right and prepare to think not like a Republican, not like a Democrat, but to think like a Christian. Now, Chris, you know, I usually start these segments off with scripture. But today I want to start with a question and then we will get to the scripture. But I want to start with the question. The question is, should Christians accept money from secular foundations? I want you all to think about that. Should Christian organizations, I should say, accept money from secular foundations? Well, Megan Basham had an answer for that. She recently wrote an article in First Things entitled Follow the Money to the After Party. The article is about a Christian civic initiative called the After Party. According to the After Party's website, and we know, you know, it's no secret that we know the folks who run this and have had some of them and have been on the podcast of some of them and done things with them. But the, the the website of the after party says the project aims to reorient Christian thinking about politics on the person of Jesus Christ in an effort to heal political divisions in the church and to cultivate key biblical virtues like humility, kindness and hopefulness in Christian political engagement. The after party is led by Duke Divinity professor Curtis Chang, and it was developed along with New York Times columnist David French and Christianity Today editor Dr. Russell Moore, formerly of the ERLC. 
Now, according to the article, this program offers pastors and small groups a curriculum reframing Christian political identity from today's divisive political options. It quotes Tim Alberta. Tim Alberta has just written an, a book about evangelicals. It's got a lot of people up in arms, mostly very conservative evangelicals. And he kind of explained, he talks, I guess, about the after party. I haven't read the book yet, but he says that during the beginning of this project, it hit a roadblock because it says that evangelical donors had little interest in funding an explicitly political Bible study. Thus, to get the after party off the ground, and this is according to the article, the trio that we just mentioned, who are all frequent critics of evangelicals who voted for Donald Trump, turned to predominantly progressive unbelievers for funding. In fact, says the article, they turned to secular left wing foundations. The after party is one of 32 beneficiaries of the New Pluralists Project. And the new, what the new pluralists have done is they got a bunch of different groups with different values, brought together a bunch of different funders and said, we want to increase pluralism through funding groups with different values who hold that in common, that you should be respectful of other people who have different beliefs. So we're, we don't have to agree with them. We just want to fund them so that they can push that value out to uh, their respective demographics and so on. Now, Rockefeller is part of that, is one of those donors. And This article says that Rockefeller's interest in bake rolling Bible studies is a red flag. And the same grant round as the after party, I want to get this right, is a group seeking to promote the leadership of rural LGBTQ plus people. Another is committed to keeping the remaining fossil fuel resources in the ground in the name of climate justice. In 2019, the after party's benefactor gave $100 million to the Collaborative for Gender and Reproductive Equity an initiative that funds efforts to safeguard abortion and ensure youth have access to gender-affirming care. The writer asks, does anyone really believe these secular progressive grant makers are interested in developing a church curriculum about politics without an eye toward affecting policy? Besham ends her article by saying this, As for those pastors considering whether to bring the after party into their churches, they should take the advice of the classic film, All the President's Men, and follow the money. So that's what Besham has to say about the after party. Before I address what she has to say, let's let's go to the scripture. And so I want to first take you to Ezra chapter one, verses one through four. And it reads, in the first year of Cyrus, king of Persia, in order to fulfill the word of the Lord spoken by Jeremiah, The Lord moved the heart of Cyrus, king of Persia, to make a proclamation throughout his realm and also to put it in writing. This is what Cyrus, king of Persia, said. The Lord, the God of heaven, has given me all the kingdoms of the earth and has appointed me to build a temple for him at Jerusalem in Judah. Any of his people among you may go up to Jerusalem in Judah and build the temple of the Lord, the God of Israel the God who is in Jerusalem, and may their God be with them. And in any locality where survivors may now be living, the people are to provide them with silver and gold, with goods and livestock, and with free will offerings for the temple of God in Jerusalem. Now, Chris, you know that Ezra 
is written about a period in the Bible called the return. Uh, We know that the Israelites had been exiled in Babylon for 70 years. Leadership changes hands and eventually Persia is in control. Folks like Ezra and Nehemiah are seeking to repair things. They're seeking to repair the temple. They're seeking to repair the walls. And they're also seeking to repair a broken people, a people who have kind of lost their way and, and lost their understanding of God and who they are. And as they're trying to fix all these things, it's a big moment in biblical history. We find that this was actually funded by the Persians, funded by people who were non-believers. This is why they say, may their God be with them. Something tells me, Chris, and I could be wrong. You may disagree with me, but something tells me that they may have had some other initiatives that they were funding that were outside of biblical doctrine, but they helped God's people do good work in this particular instance. I think that's a very important example. Chris, this First Things article has no scriptural references in it. It doesn't conclude that the after party broke any orthodox doctrinal positions. Doesn't do that. The article, in my opinion, isn't really a defense of the church. It's a defense of MAGA. The error at issue in this article isn't some violation of biblical tenets. It's a violation of culture war tenets. This isn't about the kingdom. From what I can tell, Chris, this is about electing Trump. See, this is following kind of the culture war model, the culture war framework, which is a culture war that says the other side is purely evil. And everything they do is evil. In fact, they are not capable of helping people they don't agree with. There's always some ulterior motive. There's always some way that this has to be corrupted. They can't really mean and be doing what they say. They actually can't do anything positive or even be sincerely pluralistic. And Chris, we've discussed this before on this show. And so for people who've been listening for a while, they know that the Ann campaign is also a part of the new pluralists. And we have received funds before from secular foundations. And so as I bring this up to you, it's not necessarily a defense of the after party, although I think they are doing good work. We do have an interest in, in, in stepping into this conversation and weighing in. So I want to be clear about that, too. I have many disagreements with Rockefeller, but they have chosen to support pluralism, which means they're supporting organizations who are trying to do something positive, even if they disagree with that. Some of that organization's values because they uphold pluralism. And pluralism basically is about respect for people with different views. And the Ann campaign continually tells y'all to stand 10 toes down on doctrine when it comes to being a Christian. But you have to have respect, especially in a pluralistic democracy, for people who disagree with you. And I think that's something worth investing in, whether it's Christians who are doing it or it's other people who are doing it. The whole point is that these are groups that disagree, but can come to the table and have conversations and try to find solutions. No mentioning of that really, Chris, in the article, right? Nobody from has ever come to me from the New Pluralist or from Rockefeller and has asked me to change anything that we believe. And if they did, there wouldn't be a relationship there. Those who know us can feel assured and can trust 
that none of that is going to change. Now, I'm about to give it to you. Give me just one second, Chris, because I don't want to go too long. I know you got a lot to say about this. To me, Chris, the primary question here isn't necessarily where what the source of the money is, although I do think that's fair game to ask and it should be scrutinized. And we scrutinize that all the time. Because there can be a connection to corruption based on who you're getting your money from. We know that we talk about that. So it's a fair question. But the primary question to me here is, does the organization and the people in the organization have integrity? What this article does is that is it raises suspicions about other Christians based solely on circumstantial factors rather than pointing to any specific issue. Not only does it not reference scripture, It doesn't point to how the actual curriculum, the substance of the curriculum is in any way bad for the church. It doesn't investigate that at all. This is purely guilt by association. And I think that it's wrong, if not sinful, to impugn other believers without being able to point to a particular doctrinal or behavioral error that they've made. What this seems to be to me is a hit piece in a Christian publication. Chris, what are your thoughts, man? My thoughts are many, but I would start with this. Number one, I think it's okay to disagree with our stance on pluralism and the after party stands on pluralism. I think that if you want to make the argument that the United States should become a theocracy, a theocratic form of government, and that's what you believe, that is okay to argue that. But I think that you should go ahead and argue that, that you do not believe in pluralism. And if you do not believe in pluralism, then any engagement with people who are not coming from a purely uh, sort of Christian perspective and background may fall out of bounds for what you believe to be true about how we should do civics and politics in the United States. I happen to believe in pluralism uh, and think that the scriptures and the the broader Christian ethic has strong ideas. And so I'm not afraid to bring those ideas to the public discourse because I think that they can stand on their own and be vigorously defended in the public square. So I support pluralism. And I think if you oppose pluralism, that is a legitimate stance, but you should take that stance and not try to say that folks who are Believing pluralism, pursuing pluralism are doing something out of bounds from what they believe. I think that doing this in a pluralistic society is also a legitimate Christian perspective and approach, right? If you don't believe in it, that's fine. But, you know, you should take that stance. Number two is that I think it is important for us to say that, like you said, it's a critical question right? And a legitimate question. I would go further to say we would be dishonest to suggest that there are some legitimate potential traps and you need that kind of insight. And I don't, I can't speak for the after party just because I'm not inside of that organization, but I can speak for the and campaign and people should know like the, the deep look at what we do and where we receive funds from and uh, even just in the conversations that we have had with funders, right? To to be really, really clear about the fact that we're going to do the thing the way that we believe God has given us to do it. 
And we are going to be firm on our Christian ethic. We're going to name the name of Christ. We're going to use scripture and obey scripture. Like that is going to be who we are. And if you can't get with that, then you probably don't want to fund us. We also welcome other people, right? Internally and externally to look at the work product because even as we're endeavoring to be full of integrity, we ask other people to look and say, are there places where we need to change? But like, we're doing that kind of like deep work, right? I don't, I know that the end campaign is not, and I don't think that majority of folks who are venturing into this work in this way are doing this without doing the deep work to make sure that our hearts are are right and that the work is pure. So that's one of the things that I guess it kind of frustrates me a little bit. I'm going to stop short of saying that it makes me angry. But like you said, the article sort of impugns the integrity of people when I know that folks are out here doing deep heart work right. uh, to make sure that this stuff is right. And so to suggest something different is is really, really I don't think that's something that somebody should do lightly. And then the third thing I, I will say is that the faulty nature of the premise is really exposed in the last sentence of the article, right? Because the last sentence of the article says, for any pastor who is thinking about bringing the after party to your church, take advice from a movie, right? right. Why not take advice from the scripture, <laughs> right? <laughs> you know, if, if this whole thing is about, you know, a secular movie. Being, right. A secular movie, not a, a Christian secular movie. movie. Yeah. It's like, after all I've said about, you know, we can't do anything with anything that's slightly secular, I want to tell you to take advice from a movie. I would urge pastors to take advice from the scriptures. Take advice from the Sermon on the Mount where Jesus says a lot of things in that sermon that I think speak to this. Number one, judge a tree by its fruit, right? Mm. Don't talk to me about the funding source. Talk to me about the curriculum. Talk to me about the people and their past work and the things that they are doing. What is the fruit, right? Because that's how we're going to know what is good and, and what is bad by the fruit that it produces. Talk to me about how the organization is investing the resources that it has, right? Like, is that money been invested in, in things that are really building the church? go over to Paul and, and take advice from Paul to move in love, right? And to believe all things and hope all things, right? And 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 really come to this believing the best and hoping for the best, obviously being willing if stuff goes left to be critical, but approach it with charity, right? I think that this is the counsel of scripture yeah. rather than taking advice from a movie. And that is kind of like the underlying issue that, that I have with the with the whole article. And again, for you, you, I think you're right to point out that this should go be under scrutiny, though. I'm not saying that somebody should can look and say, oh, you know, the end campaign receives funds from a, a secular institution. I, I, It doesn't matter. I think I think there's rightfully somebody who would say, OK, what it, what is up with this? How could this impact or influence what they do or say? And if you ever when I want you all to come at us is when you ever hear us pull back from our convictions. Yeah. When you hear that then feel free to say whatever you got to say to us and we're, we're going to hear it out. So I, I think that's right because we know whether it's churches or other people, a lot of organizations have become more progressive yeah. because of who they're getting money from. And that, and those organizations have been able to place a leash 
or other bounds on what they can say publicly. And that happens and that's wrong. Therefore, the scrutiny is fair as far as, hey, we should look at this. But you want to look to what you said. You want to look at the substance. And I'm going to be right. I'm going to be 100 with you right now. There would be very few black church civic organizations if people out of black churches did not accept funding from secular organizations. Do with that what you will. But you wouldn't have hardly any. And I know some of you may be okay with that. But you wouldn't have hardly any African, African-American black church oriented civic organizations if they were not able to accept money from secular foundations. Is that a failure of the church? Is that a fa- I don't know. You you come to that conclusion, but that's just real. And for the people who say, OK, I don't like pluralism. I don't think you should get funding from any of this. The question I would ask is, do you issue the same critique for Christian organizations that accept money from the government? Is every Christian organization that accepts money from the government equally flawed and they sh- and should they be canceled? It's a question you got to ask. Now, I'm going to be honest with you, Chris. When I found out that the new pluralists, Fetzer, folks like that were giving money to doctrinally conservative faith organizations, I was surprised. That was a surprise to me. And we investigated that and we asked questions and we talked to the board about it. And there were even more questions. Christians do have to be discerning about this stuff. It's kind of what I'm getting at. Like, it's a big deal. I was surprised. But what I'm trying to tell you is that without those kind of funds, all you would have is a small group of very ideological conservative donors controlling the whole landscape. And when I read this article, that's what I think they want it to be. Yeah, We control whether you have an organization or not, because we get to say, if you don't align with us, you just don't get, you have no other choices by which to get funding. But to me, it's really about the integrity of the organization, the integrity of people behind the organization. What I know of uh, the folks that are a part of this, especially Dr. Moore, David French, these are people with integrity. They stand 10 doughs down. Some of the stuff, some of the things that the other new pluralists are doing and supporting, read half the stuff that Dr. Moore or David French has put out. They clearly don't agree with it. Yeah. So what's the point of even putting that in there when this is a, a, about pluralism and, and us communicating in that way? Like, let, let's be serious. So we need to scrutinize that stuff. We need to look closer. And the interesting part of this is to me, though, is this type of scrutiny for and campaign has usually come from progressives. Right. So like before a progressive publication or organization is willing to engage us, they ask us, who, you know, who, who, who do you, who funds you? Because they figure that because of our stance on sexuality, because of our stance on abortion, it must be Westboro Baptist church that funds us. And that's their way of not having to deal with us, or that's their way of trying to dismiss us. The beauty of what the Ann campaign does is we get funding from black churches. We get funding from uh, evangelical foundations we get funding, as you see from secular, we, we have a diversity of where our funding comes from. And so we're not dependent on one, one or the other. But it's important to really look deeply into this stuff. Now, I'm just going to say this and you guys can take it or leave it. For those of you who don't agree with taking funding from secular people, that's fine. Maybe one way to go about this is to verify the salvation of each of your donors before you get the money from them. 
Maybe that's what you guys should do. Verify it, whatever way you might want to do that. Verify the salvation uh, before before you actually take take any money from. But I say that in jest. There are organizations I wouldn't take money from, right? Like there are organizations that are so far gone that it's like no, there's no, there's nothing there. But we have to we we have to be very shrewd and discerning when it comes to that decision. And I'll let you take us out, Chris. Yeah, I mean, I think you absolutely got to be shrewd and discerning, but it's got to be the analysis has to be on what the fruit is, because honestly, I would lay the same assessment even when you're getting funding from any individual or organization that claims the name of Christ and claims this type of aspiration in civics and politics. But then what is the fruit producing, right? Like is even in those cases, it is more important to look at fruit than to look at these kind of like external things. There's one other thing that I want to point out in the article because it, it is a bit of a straw man where the article talks about if you want the church to be less political, then focus less on politics yourself. I don't think that the end campaign or the after party is saying that the church needs to be less political. I can personally say I think that the church needs to enter more deeply into civic and political spaces because so much that is impacting our culture today is taking place in those spaces. We're not talking about not going into those spaces. We're talking about entering those spaces much more faithfully, much more. And being less partisan and being not less political. So uh, that is that's an argument against something that I don't think the organization ever stated was their goal. Again, I just think that don't take these faulty kind of sideways attacks on folks who you may fundamentally disagree with. And and and, and I think that if you have that fundamental disagreement that there should not be sort of this this embrace of pluralism. And if you take that approach, I think you gotta argue that because these these sideways attacks are I think they are beneath the dignity of of, of the, the church. That's real. And, and I'll just say this, the money that we've walked away from tables and walked away from money. And Please most say. of that was Christian, Christian donors who wanted to push us to one way or the other. Just an FYI. We'll be right back on the church politics podcast. Are you too progressive for conservatives and too conservative for progressives? As a Christian, do you find yourself feeling politically homeless? If so, then you're not alone. Listen, this is Justin Gibney, president of the Ann Campaign. And if you're a Christian who doesn't know a whole lot about politics or someone who knows a good deal about politics but wants to be more faithful in the public square, then you have to read the Ann Campaign's book, Compassion and Conviction. The Ann Campaign's Guide to Faithful Civic Engagement that we published with InterVarsity Press. Whether you just want to understand the relationship between church and state, why Christians should engage politics at all, how Christians should engage partisanship, politics and race, advocacy and protest, or even civility, this is the book for you. It's very much Bible-centered. It's Bible study and small group friendly. There are questions and exercises after every chapter that give you a framework for engaging politics in a biblical way. So if you want to do it in a better way, get our book, Compassion and Conviction, The End Campaign's Guide to Faithful Civic Engagement. Oh,
And we are back on the Church Politics Podcast. Well, as you probably know, earlier this week, the New Hampshire, New Hampshire had what is the first primary of this election season. Now, I know you know that Iowans have already voted in the primary, but that's not in a primary. That's technically a caucus. Right. So New Hampshire is the first primary. Now, Chris, interesting race in the in this primary. New Hampshire is a little bit different. The inter- I think one of the things that sticks out to me about this particular primary is that Biden is is not on the ballot. So Biden ends up winning on the Democratic side, but not but he wasn't on the ballot. He had to win as a right in candidate. And the reason that he had to win as a write in candidate instead of you being able to go to the ballot and, you know, just choose him with his name on it, his name doesn't show up, is this big dispute about him choosing a different calendar, election cycle, primary calendar, right? He decides that he wants to change their tradition. So instead of New Hampshire being first, he wants South Carolina to be first. And so he doesn't, be, he's not a part of this. Why he wants South Carolina to be first? is up to who you ask, right? Some people would say because last election or last primary, he came in fifth in New Hampshire. And so he wanted to change it. Others would say it's because he won in South, you know, it's because South Carolina actually better reflects the demographics of America than New Hampshire does, right? I'm guessing you can, you'll figure out which one is the partisan one of that. He obviously gains an advantage from having the first one be South Carolina, okay? I've said this before, I'll say it again. I just don't like how Democrats have been handling this primary process. I don't think you can stand on the soapbox of it's all about democracy and then play these games with the primary. I mean, if you go down in Florida, they're basically not even having a Democratic primary. They're canceling it. How, how do we say it's all? How does somebody say that it's all about democracy and you're not letting people vote for other people? You're totally closing them out. Some, somebody in the DNC actually said that the New Hampshire primary was worthless, was meaningless. Basically, it shouldn't even be happening. So this upset a lot of people in New Hampshire. They end up still having it before South Carolina, obviously. One of the reasons for that is because they actually have a New Hampshire constitution has a provision that says they have to be the first primary of the year and so on. So end up having it a lot of back and forth between them. On the other side of the aisle, you have Trump who wins Really convincingly. Now, coming into this, some people thought that Nikki Haley had an opportunity to, to win. I never really believed that. She ends up getting handled fairly well. I've seen a couple of headlines that say she lost a close race, but I've never heard it described when it's one on one and somebody wins by 12 points as it being a close race. That doesn't seem like a close race. Some folks were saying that I guess it was a CNN exit poll that showed that like 70 percent of her voters were not even Republicans. So that may say something on what she can do later on. Obviously, next she's going to South Carolina, her home state. I've seen polls where she's down by like 30 there, but she's not dropping out. Right. Maybe she's not dropping out because, hey, Trump can go to jail any day and I'd be the last woman standing and then I'd be the nominee. What were your thoughts on this New Hampshire primary and all that went into it? I'll start on Republican side. I think Nikki Haley is on the Trump implosion plan. And, you know, I think that's her strategy. And as long as there are donors who are willing to invest in that, I think she'll be there. I can't say I necessarily blame her. There are 
just a, a whole lot of hoops that have to be jumped through and tight spots that need to be navigated for the former president. I mean, he has, to this point, demonstrated a tremendous capacity and some kind of tremendous good fortune when it comes to navigating all those things. So it's not the likeliest scenario, but I think that's what Haley is looking at. And as long as you have somebody saying, you know, Trump's going to get 60% in New Hampshire and he gets just over 50%, you're going to have a window to spin it in a way that allows you to stay in the race. I will say it is something to listen to the former president take aim at his primary challenger using the argument that it's delusional that coming off of an election that she clearly did not win, that she would behave as if she did win. I do think that it's nice to know that everybody agrees that if the election happens and you clearly didn't win, that you you act like you didn't <laughs> win. I think that that's, that's good for our politics, just in my opinion. On the Democratic side, I'm so frustrated with the Democratic Party and how they are handling this primary in order to defend democracy. This is the argument, it seems. In in order to defend democracy, one must absolutely destroy democracy. You know, this moving of the primaries, I get the argument for a more demographically reflective state to go first. But if you're going to do it that way, if you're going to change it for that reason, you got to find some kind of a way where you don't have the first primary of a presidential cycle be in this large state with these major media markets and this sort of very complex situation to navigate. And because I can say, as somebody who was up close and personal in uh, 2008, if you are a, a, a Democrat and you are picking up what the party is putting down in terms of we put the primary over in South Carolina to help black people. Let me tell you, you never get President Barack Obama if the first primary state was South Carolina. No way where the campaign was uh, at Mm -hmm. the beginning of the primary season that it could have gone to South Carolina and beat Hillary Clinton. The, The infrastructure was not there. The name recognition was not there. What what where Obama comes from is the ability to be well organized, work real hard, get into a state like Iowa, a small state, small media market, and, and actually make a difference. And I think that it's a more likely scenario that not only a black candidate, but any smaller startup candidate is going to find a more promising pathway through those smaller states than they ever will through the large state. And so if you're going to change in that way, there's got to be some kind of innovation and accommodation to make sure that we don't always only have the most establishment person winning primaries. And you see the establishment and how easy it is for the establishment to weigh in when you look and see that Joe Biden got above 50% on on a, a primary ballot where his name didn't even appear, right? It had to be a write-in candidacy, and he still got above 50%. Well, somebody might look at that and say, well, that's an accomplishment. That's a, a testament to the fact that everybody wants Joe Biden. No, that's a testament to the fact that by changing the primaries around this way, it prevented a lot of people who could have put forward a much more legitimate program 
from getting into this process. And even the folks who did have the courage to get in, it shows how easy it is to just drop a million and a half dollars in a week and a half and smash into in, into the primary. So this whole setup to me is less democratic and more pro-establishment than one could possibly imagine. There are already things inside of the Democratic primary with superdelegates and all that stuff. There was already plenty of stuff weighting the primary in favor of establishment candidates already. So I don't care for it too much, but we see the outcome on last night's yeah. primary. It's clear that these two parties have American democracy in a stranglehold. And democracy really, 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 really matters when it's convenient, but it's okay to compromise it on the other end when it's expedient as well. So we're just seeing that. We're going to call it out because that's what's going on. There's no way that this primary should be treated like this when you have a historically unpopular president. This is what the fact, the facts are what they are. And you can give me a bunch of partisan talking points, but I've heard it all before, you know, so. That's where we are on this, man. We will be right back on the Church Politics Podcast. And we are back on the Church Politics Podcast. It's Justin Gibney and the Right Reverend Christopher Butler. Chris, I saw a story as I was scrolling down my timeline that that really hit me. I'm going to be honest with you. I am not a... Michigan fan. I was not happy when Michigan beat Alabama. I rarely want to see the Big Ten do well in any way, shape, or form. So I'm be I'm just be 100 with you about that. But I learned something about their coach Jim Harbaugh that made me have a newfound respect for him. So apparently, I think it was last weekend he was at the March for Life in Washington D.C., which is a big event. I know my boy Benjamin Watson is always there, you know, speaking and, and putting in work, man, uh, really cares about that issue. And we appreciate him. But I saw some. So Jim Harbaugh was also there. And I saw this post where he said that he always tells his staff and players that if they ever have an un- unplanned pregnancy, that before they advising the woman to have an abortion, know that he and his wife would take care of that baby. For a head football coach, knowing, you know, what football players, you know, president, president company included, myself, and it's not just football players, what young people, especially in this hookup culture do, that's, that means something. But to say to them and put on their conscience that, hey, before you abort a baby, talk to me, I'll, I'll, I'll take the baby. That's not only faithful. I mean, most importantly, it's faithful. I mean, just a, a great example of discipleship. But it's just great leadership, right? It, it's sacrificial leadership and showing people, showing these players that it, it's more, it's bigger than the game. Like our relationships bigger than this game. Life is bigger than this game. Go ahead, Chris. What are your thoughts? Yeah, I mean, I have known that that, that Harbo was. Uh, pretty vocally pro-life for a minute and sitting here in Chicago don't mind Big Ten teams doing their thing. But I'm glad he went to the march, was not able to go personally. But it's refreshing to me every time I see somebody, when I, when I see Benjamin Watson still doing his thing, because this is one of those issues right now where it is just tough to stay 
committed and to stay vocal on the issue of saying, you know, that that abortion is a morally bankrupt practice and is not something that a society and a government should be promoting as a solution for the many, many difficulties that many women and families face when it comes to challenging pregnancies, right? Like those issues are very fraught, but this particular political moment is one where it is a lot easier just to, if not change your whole tune and and become vocal on the other side, at least to just be quiet and don't say anything. And so anytime I see somebody who's willing to to stand up and, and, and say what they believe, especially in unpopular moments, it it's, it's encouraging. Yep. It is encouraging. And I've been encouraged just in general about how many players CJ Stroud comes to mind have just been talking about the gospel every chance that they get. So you got guys like CJ Stroud, you have your quarterback that out there, my man Justin, really being willing to put out there, look, I'm a Christian and and Christ is what is what's important to me. Christ is even bigger than this. I've heard Josh Allen say stuff. I mean, it's it's so encouraging to me and just so encouraging to my sons to see folks standing. And and I think more than any other sport, even close, being so vocal about their faith and really guys living it, too. Right. You know, there's always guys who say, oh, thank you. Thank yeah. God for now. I'm talking about guys getting deep into what the gospel means to them. And seemingly I'm not, you know, around them all the time, but seemingly doing their best to live out the gospel. Mm-hmm. Again, C.J. Stroud comes to mind. Proud, I'm just proud of these folks for the sport that I love. Hey, standing on business, standing ten toes down on, on on scripture, and being who they are, and not being ashamed of it. Well, that is it for us. This is the last segment. I hope you enjoyed this. I mean, this was this was a conversation that was much needed. We always want to be transparent, so we didn't want to hide behind what the after party's going through. It brought up the issue, but it's something that we wanted to address again with you. So, as always, thanks for joining us. Don't forget. The theme song for Civic Revival is Al Green. Everything's going to be all right. I want y'all playing that. I want to see video. If you want to send me a video, y'all be playing that in your car. I'll be happy to listen to it. All right. All right. And camp, you know what it is. There's a cross that neither political conservatism or progressivism is fit to bear. There's a civic hearing and neither faithful witnesses who love social justice and won't surrender the truth to be loved by the world. Politic with the boldness and compassion of Jesus Christ. Until next time, man, Camp. I'll let you.